Our scripture reading this morning is a short one, but a good one from John 20, 30 through 31. It's page 1137 in the Bibles in your book rack. And if you are a visitor, we do have a connect card in the book rack as well. We'd appreciate your filling that out so that we might send you a note of welcome to our church. John 20, 30 through 31. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by leaving, you may have life in his name. Amen. Well, we're back in the gospel. We're back in the, the most important message uh, for us, for sure, for the world, we believe, uh, the, the message that has, maybe more than any other message, changed and left its mark on this world in which we live. Uh, we've journeyed through uh, the gospel arriving and talking about uh, who Jesus was, why his being born mattered. Uh, we've, we've looked at the, at the launch of his ministry through John the Baptist's ministry. And, uh, and then we've looked at uh, some of what he began to say and do as he launched his ministry. We could safely say that one of the things about the gospel, the uh, central thing about the gospel, is that Jesus offers the kind of life that sin and hell stole. That, that when God created the heavens and the earth, he intended for it a certain kind of existence, a certain kind of life. And that was stolen when sin entered the world and when evil entered the world. And so, so Jesus came offering the kind of life that sin and hell had stolen. And so as we look at the gospel being announced as Jesus went about the ministry that he had on earth before his death and resurrection, uh, just keep that in mind, that this is the theme. This is why he came, and this is why we're here. Today we're talking about signposts. Uh, this is a picture of a, of a particular intersection, a particular overpass and on-ramp uh, that's near the home where we used to live in Springfield, Missouri. And this on-ramp has become infamous in our family and amongst some of our friends um, because of a situation that occurred a few years back that may or may not have involved me. Uh, <laughs> we had decided we were going to take some of our close friends in Springfield there on a trip to New Mexico, which was about a 14-hour drive, if I remember right. It was a long drive. And we were, they were following us, and we had to take two cars for some reason, and, and uh, and so they were following us, and they had to follow us all the way to New Mexico. And so this was about a mile away from actually both of our houses. We lived pretty close by each other. And so we got in the car, we headed out. We had been driving about a minute. <laughs> and all I had to do was get on the interstate, headed in the right direction. But see, the thing is, I always took the other on-ramp that headed in the other direction to work. I never took the on-ramp headed the, <laughs> the, the other direction. They must have changed it or something. I don't know what happened. They did some construction 
Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm going over it, and I completely missed the on-ramp. I'm like, where is this thing? So I had to U-turn, circle back around, and then go in for another pass. Because apparently, when you U-turn, there wasn't an on-ramp from that side. You had to loop around. I don't know what was going on. And so I'm coming back through. Now, it's not all my fault. My navigator was sitting in the passenger seat and let me miss it again. <laughs> and the people driving behind us are like, we're following this guy to New Mexico. <laughs> we can't even get on the on-ramp. And so they haven't let me live that down yet. Sometimes I have a problem with signs. Uh, sometimes I think it's the sign's fault. They put them in weird places, don't they? And, and they put things that don't even make sense. There's a sign on the way to uh, our trip to Oklahoma that doesn't even say the name of the road you're getting onto. It says something that you could get onto later <laughs> if you take that. But that's not what I was looking for. So I, the first few trips we took out there, I missed it and uh, finally have figured out what to look for. But signs and me, we don't always get along. And, uh, and maybe you have some kind of a relationship to signs too. Maybe you always see the signs and know exactly what they're pointing to. Uh, or maybe, like me, you get a little confused by them sometimes. With, uh, with God... There are signs. And a lot of people, um, you know, when you talk about signs, there's like a whole sort of like new agey thing that comes to mind, right? Of people living their life by signs and looking for signs in their everyday life. And, and is that a sign that I'm supposed to do this? Or is this a sign? But, you know, signs are, are anything that points to something beyond themselves, right? A, a sign is something that, that says... If you go that way, you'll find this. Or, uh, you know, if you, if you do this, then you'll find this. It, the sign doesn't exist for itself, right? Unless you're watching Antiques Roadshow or something. Uh, in which case, the people are like, oh, look at this sign. I'll pay you thousands of dollars, you know, <laughs> so I can sell it to a collector. Or, you know, I don't know. But that doesn't make sense to me. Anyway, it's not, I mean, it's, the sign is not the thing itself, Right? The sign's just telling you about the thing. It's just pointing to something. And so when we read in the Gospels about things that we call miracles now, you know, we call Jesus, that's a big part of his ministry, right? When you read the Gospels, you run across story after story talking about how Jesus would heal this person or do this miraculous thing. And in scriptures, in the Gospels, they call these signs. Sometimes they call them works. But they call them signs. Jesus himself referred to them as signs. They pointed to something. They, they indicated that, you know, if you see this, and, and if you can look where this is pointing, then you could find the thing this is pointing to. A lot of us, though, we have weird relationships to signs. The whole miracle thing uh, is a hang-up for a lot of Christians and a lot of people outside the church. You know, why don't we see miracles like that today? Why, uh, you know, I prayed for this person, they didn't get better. I guess God's not real. At least not the God I read about in the Gospel. There's a lot of things that, that cause issues for people when it comes to signs in our day and time. And we're going to talk about some of that today. But the most important thing to me is that that you understand what a sign is, and what its function is, 
And in fact, what these signs are pointing to in that short passage that we read just said, this is at the tail end of John's Gospel, it just said, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Now we know that because you can just read some of the other Gospels that we have and you find a whole bunch that weren't recorded in John's Gospel. But he's indicating that even beyond that, <laughs> you know, there, there's many that you couldn't even write down. I mean, he was just doing them all the time. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. We talked a little bit last week about how the Gospels aren't recorded the way that we would expect them to be recorded. They weren't recorded to be a chronological history. They were recorded to get a message across in the most effective way possible to their audience. And so they chose different ways to do that and to structure their Gospels. And the Gospel of John is, has a few unique things about it. And one of it is that if you read through it, spaced out throughout are seven signs. He counts the first one and the second one, and then he just mentions signs from time to time, and you've got to keep counting. <laughs> but if you'll count through, you'll get to seven. Seven signs that he felt were important enough that all pointed to something. What did they point to? They weren't written so that you'd be impressed. They weren't written so that you can do miracles. They were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing that, you may have life in His name. Signs are not the point. They're the pointers. And if you look at them, if you read about them, and you'll see what they point to. They point to Jesus. And they point to the life that he offers. I'm going to talk to you about several kinds of signs that we find in the Gospels. I'm going to tell you some stories. that There's so many of them. But I'm going to group them into seven sections just to do John proud. And we'll have seven that I'll talk to you about as quickly as possible. And... Because, you know, each of them could be their own sermon. But I'm not going to do that to you today. So, we won't do seven sermons. Just one sermon, seven signs. So, we're going we're gonna to go for that right now. And, and as I do that, as I talk to you about these, I want you to look for what these signs point to. Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, and the life that He brings. And hopefully, if we'll do that, uh, we won't miss the forest for the trees. I think we do that with the miracles and the signs of Jesus a lot of times. We get so locked in on the trees that we miss the forest. We get so locked in on the pointers that we miss the point. So let's not do that today. Okay. First off, when you read through the Gospels and the things that Jesus would do, we call signs. One of the common themes was a lot of times he would heal children, right? He would heal children. There's this story of 
uh, an official in Capernaum. And it seems to happen early in Jesus' ministry. And Jesus is in Cana, uh, the place where he performed his first miracle. We don't know if he had just done that or if this was a different trip or what. But this official, 17 miles away in Capernaum, heard about Jesus being in Cana. His child was sick, so he personally went to Jesus. Now this, in that day, you know, the primary transportation is walking. So 17 miles doesn't sound like a big deal to us. That's like, you know, go over to Ravel. I don't know exactly where, you know, Ruston, something. (laughs) 17-ish miles. And that's not a big deal to us. But in that mountainous region, on foot, it was a big deal. So he set out. And he finds Jesus. And he tells him the situation. And he asks Jesus if he would come and heal his child. And Jesus says, Go, your child is well. So the man goes. Which takes faith all by itself. He goes, and on his way back, some of his servants meet him on the road. And they say, we were just coming to tell you, your child's well. He said, when did that happen? He said, one o'clock. He said, well, that's when I met Jesus. That's when Jesus told me, go, your son is well. There's, um, there's other stories about children as well that, that may come to your mind. And the place that Jesus had in his heart for them And it's something that we understand that is broken in our world. That children ought not to be dying. Right? Something broken in our world. It's something wrong with life. And Jesus performed many signs with children. There were also many with blind people. Those who were blind by, from birth, or those who were blind due to some sort of accident or uh, something or disease that happened later in their life. And, and Jesus would go around healing them. And, and we have accounts where he just said, receive your sight, and they saw. Or go, and they saw. Or uh, there's also cases where he spit straight on their eyeball. <laughs> and, and then they could see. Or, or he spit on the ground and made mud. You know, because water was not readily available, I guess. So just make some mud with what you got. And uh, he rubs it on their eyes, and they see. He said, go wash it off. Which, who wouldn't? <laughs> right? <laughs> and so he goes and washes it off, and he can see. And, and people marveled at this, especially when he would heal people who were born blind, because no one who had ever been born blind had ever been known to recover their sight later in life. And so, Jesus would perform these signs. Similarly, uh, paralyzed people, he would heal. And I say similarly because in that culture, you know, there's there's no braille system, there's no computers, there's no you know technology to assist those that are handicapped. If you were handicapped, if you were blind or you were, um, you know, crippled, then you could not earn a living. There were not options for you. There were not government programs either for you. Uh, Your option was to find a good spot by a good gate and beg. 
This was their life. They couldn't have a family, or if they had a family already, they couldn't provide for that family any longer. Their life had been robbed from them. And just like the blind people, Jesus would come up to paralyzed people and say, do you want to be well? And that seems like a funny statement to us when we read it, but, but actually it's a legitimate question for someone who, if he heals them, their whole life's going to change. They may have to learn a trade because they may have never had the opportunity to learn one. One thing's for sure, they won't be able to sit out by the gate anymore and earn their existence that way. But Jesus offered the dignity of work. He offered their life back. And many laid hold of it. We have examples of friends bringing their paralyzed friend and and tearing apart a roof to lower him to a Jesus who was too crowded in for them to get to him. We have Jesus um, encountering a man with a crippled hand in the synagogue on a Sabbath day and very controversially healing him there on the spot. We have the example of the man who sat beside the pool of Bethesda for years hoping that somehow he could get in the pool and be supernaturally healed. Jesus comes along and he complains about how he can't ever be the first one in the pool when the water stirs. And, uh, and Jesus says, well, just pick up your mat and go. There's lepers. We don't hear much about leprosy nowadays, but this skin disease back then was ominous. These people who got it, usually through no fault of their own, right? You just get this disease and suddenly you have to be quarantined. You have to be apart from society, apart from human touch and contact. Wherever you go, you have to shout out warnings. Don't come near. What kind of life is that? And Jesus would come to these people and he would heal them. There's the example of when he healed ten lepers and only one came back to say thank you. But the most marvelous thing about those healings to me is that Jesus would so often touch them before he healed them. He didn't heal them and then say, all right, let me give you a hug now. (laughs) He touched them and then he healed them. And can you imagine what that must have felt like to someone who hadn't had human contact Demon possession. That's one we're not real thrilled about. Unless you like horror movies, then you might like that topic. But otherwise, <laughs> you, we, that's one that we don't really get it. We don't see a lot of it. Uh, you know, we're, There's a lot of suspicion amongst academics that probably uh, some of, at least some of those things were things that we probably have labels for now, but they didn't know how to label back then. Uh, but... When you read the Gospels, there's these weird things that happen and and beings that talk to Jesus like they know stuff about Him that no one else seemed to know about Him. That they had this respect and awe for His authority that other people didn't yet have. And 
just unusual stories. We're told Mary Magdalene had seven demons in her that Jesus cast out. And she later became one of the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, I can't help but mention these kinds of things because I think they're cool and faith-helping. But who in the first century would cast a formerly demon-possessed woman as the first witness of the resurrection. You, know, you don't do that unless it happened that way. Because, one, women's testimony wasn't really respected back then on things like that. Two, she was demon-possessed before. You don't add that detail in. It doesn't add respectability to the lady. <laughs> you know? uh, so, <clears throat> anyway... There's also the guy, when Jesus came uh, and saw this guy just running around naked and crazy in the cemetery. Something wrong with that guy, right? And Jesus casts demons out of him. They called themselves legion because there were so many of them. He cast them out. The man is suddenly sitting there sane in his right mind. And he is actually sent, you might call him the first missionary to the Gentiles. He's sent out back amongst his people to tell them what Jesus had done for him. Jesus had authority over not just sickness, but over powers in this world and in the other world as well. And there's a particular miracle I wanted to mention as number six, if you've been counting. It's the feeding of 5,000. This is the one sign of Jesus that appears in all four gospel accounts. The feeding of the 5,000 must be important if they all chose to feature it. What happened? Jesus was teaching. These crowds were there. They were a long ways from town. There was not somewhere to, uh, for them to go and easily get food. They didn't have much food with them. Jesus and his disciples didn't have food with them. It was a, a food issue. Which probably was not that unfamiliar to them. In fact, I would suggest that most of the people standing there were probably used to either missing meals or certainly used to uh, not getting full at mealtime. Food was not a guaranteed thing like it is for us. Your next meal was not necessarily guaranteed. It was not guaranteed that you were going to have leftovers when you went to the restaurant. <laughs> you weren't going to leave with a doggy bag, right? This was not the world they lived in. And Jesus says, I want to feed them. And they brought him five loaves and two fish. And he began to break it after he blessed it and prayed to the Father. And, and they filled up baskets and they took them around to the thousands and thousands of people. 5,000 men plus women and children. We don't know the exact total. And in the end they had leftovers. When you read the Gospels, you find Jesus doing a lot with meals all the time. He liked to sit down and eat with people. Uh, there's another similar instance recorded for us of feeding 4,000 people. There's other occasions where he broke bread before and after his death and resurrection and shared meals with people. 
in that culture especially, but in ours too, to some degree, meal sharing was, was a relational thing. It was a, an important part of doing life together, right? And it seemed really important to Jesus to share meals with people and to give food. He even called himself the bread of life. The bread of life. Remember that every sign points to something, to someone, and to what he brings. Life. One last sign to talk about. When Jesus would raise people from the dead. You don't get much more of a clear sign that points to life than that, do you? There's the little girl when he shows up at the house, they say she's already dying. He says, she's just sleeping. And they mock him. They know what death is. They know what it looks like. They know how it works. But he walks in. And he calls to her. And she gets up. There's the widow's son. Her only son. And Jesus sees this procession going by. It wasn't just that this was her only son and, and that it's a tragic and sad situation as it would be in our culture. But in her culture, this was her last means of provision. Her husband had already died. Now her only son had died. Who was going to take care of her? Jesus takes this young man and calls him back to life. The very last sign that John records for us in his gospel. See, he tries to kind of have this crescendo, this swelling, this building towards something really big. And so the signs become more impressive as you go. And the last one, the last one is Lazarus. Perhaps you're familiar with it. A friend of Jesus who had been dead four days when Jesus made it there. Jesus says, roll the stone away. They say, it's been four days. (laughs) He says, roll the stone away. He says, what? Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus, walks out of that tomb. He says, take all those burial cloths off of him. This created such a stir that they were told that the leaders got together and said, it's now. We've got to kill him. The people are going crazy. And wouldn't you... This took place just outside Jerusalem and it wasn't very much longer before Jesus would ride in on the colt of a donkey with people waving palm branches and throwing their cloaks down before him to welcome him as king. Because they saw the signs. They saw that he was the Messiah. They hoped for the life that he would bring They may not have had it all figured out how it was going to work, but they saw what the signs were pointing to. 
Remember, the pointers are not the point. Rather, each sign points to where true life can be found. Each sign points to the place where true life can be found. I want to talk to you just for a moment, as practically as I can, about what this means for us today. And the first thing I want to ask you is to make sure, you know, do you see who and what the signs are pointing to? Do you understand? A lot of us, I fear, treat signs as if they were the point themselves. And we know this because of the way that we pray. And we know this because of the way that we respond when prayers don't get answered the way we want them to. I would say that probably for most of us in our culture, probably most of our prayer life has to do with praying for these kinds of events in our lives and in the lives of our friends and loved ones. Anytime someone is sick, especially when it's tragic or unjust, we hit our knees in prayer. Sometimes I think that, that we look at these signs as, as the point themselves. As Jesus came to just heal people and do miracles. And so if you follow Jesus, then, then you'll find out that you can have all these miracles too, because that's just part of the deal. No, these were not the point. They're the pointers. And still to this day, when people receive miraculous healing, it's not the point. It's the pointer. Our hope is not so temporary as a miracle. Every one of those miracles that I just recounted for you, or alluded to in some way, that person went on to have other sufferings, and eventually to die. Even Lazarus. In fact, Lazarus, we're told, when Jesus raised him from the dead, not only did it put a target on Jesus' back, it put a target on Lazarus' back. They wanted to kill him too, because of what he represented. Because of what he pointed to, now that he was back from the dead. And we don't know if they carried that out or not. They succeeded in killing Jesus. They may have very well succeeded in killing Lazarus as well. Our hope is not so temporary as a sign, as a miracle. But those miracles and those signs point to our hope, don't they? It points to someone who has authority over the injustices in our world. It points to someone who's offering life where death and sin and hell have been reigning. Have you discovered the truth that the signs point to? How do you pray? I think it was Barbara who posted something the other day on, on Facebook about how we pray for people uh, and said something like, 
was it make it count? They pray that God would make it count. You know, whatever they're going through, whether you want to heal this God, or whether you want to uh, not heal this person, or, or whether you want to take this out of my life, or leave it in my life, make it count, God. And I think that's a little bit closer, don't you, to, to, to what the point of the pointers is. Every pointer that Jesus put up, every sign that he put up, he wanted to make it count for the kingdom. He wanted it to point people to who he was, to who he is. Uh, he said this one time, it's another section in John, he said to some people who were accusing him of blasphemy, why do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said I am God's son. Don't believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. It's a specific reason that Jesus performed signs and did works. It was so that people might see who he was and what he was bringing, what he was doing. The second question I want to ask you is, are you putting up signs that point to the truth in your life? Similar passage, Jesus said, Believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very boldly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And when we read the Acts of the Apostles, we see that the Apostles, even after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension into heaven, went on doing powerful things in His name, pointing the way to who Jesus was and what kind of life he was bringing. If you read reports from across the world in places that we might call unreached with the gospel, you still find that many signs accompany the gospel. Often we feel like we don't see it much in our day and in our time in our world today. And I don't have all the answers on that. But I do believe that with whatever gift God gives you, with however He equips you, we are to be about the business of putting up signs that point to Jesus, to who He is, to what He brings. And the church has done this for 2,000 years. You'll hear a lot of people talk about bad things that people have done in the name of Christ, and I don't deny them. There's been a lot done in the name of Christ that I don't think Christ would have been very proud of. But not too many people like to talk about where our world would be if not for Christians. Take away every hospital that was ever started by a Christian or a group of Christians. For that matter, take away every uh, higher education institution that wasn't started by people who were Christians. Where do you think human rights would be at without Christianity and its influence? The list goes on and on. Where do you think the condition of the poor would be if Christians hadn't started this whole idea of taking care of those who are in need? 
put up signs. And the greatest sign of all is a life that's changed. If you'll find life in Christ, then your very life will be a sign pointing to the one who gave you that life. You know, it's funny, Jesus would perform all these signs. And as he did, people would ask him for more signs. And they would ask him for the sign. You know, like, all these signs you're doing, Jesus, are pretty impressive and great. Like, give us one that, you know, really blows our minds. And there's just no denying, uh, you know, who you are and what you're doing. Just give us the sign of all signs. And Jesus would get so frustrated with people. Like, you know, no matter what I do, you're going to find some excuse for not buying into it if you want to. Uh, but he did say this. He said, the only sign that will be afforded to this generation is the sign of Jonah. That's weird, isn't it? So the only sign I'm going to give you of that kind that you're wanting is the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. If you know the story of Jonah, uh, Jonah's this kind of odd character in the Old Testament scriptures, which was all their scriptures, New Testament, was being lived, not written at that point. And so Jonah is this guy, he, he's cast overboard to save the boat, right? All the people on the boat are going to die if he's not cast overboard. So they cast him overboard, and Jonah gets swallowed up by the sea and swallowed up by a large fish. And he stays in the belly of this fish how long? Three days. And on the third day, it spits him up alive on the shore. And he goes and delivers the message that God had called him to deliver. And life is given to the entire city of Nineveh because they repent at his message. Now Jesus says, the only sign I'm going to give these folks is the sign of Jonah. And then Jesus was the one cast out of the boat and thrown up on the cross to save the people who were going down. Jesus is the one who was buried in the tomb for three days. But on the third day, And now he offers life. It's the sign of all signs. The evidence for it is astounding. Jesus resurrected from the dead. Jesus offers you the kind of life that sin and hell stole. Have you discovered the truth that the signs point to? And are you putting up signs that point to the truth? And if you're still not sure about Jesus, I would ask you to think about the signs. Starting with the signs in Scripture. And also the signs in your own life that point to Jesus. That point to who He is as the Son of God the point to what he brings life let's pray father
Thank you for these signs. Thank you even more for the hope that they point to. It's easy to become enamored with the signs and miss what they point to. So Holy Spirit, help us to see them for what they are and help us to do our part in putting up signs that will point people to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.